Everybody, I'm Johnny Torres, and this is the Yard Sign, the most important, relevant podcast in politics. Coming to you live, as always, from Tampa Bay, Florida, and uh, I'm excited because we've got lots to talk about and some new faces on the show. Uh, so, first of all, let's run in through the topics. We're going to discuss RNC to Jacksonville. That's right, the GOP convention after uh, having it here in Tampa in 2012 is coming back to Jacksonville for 2020. We'll do, uh, talk about that. SCOTUS and the LGBTQ ruling that came out uh, today, as a matter of fact, we'll pick that apart uh, and talk about the different reactions and uh, outcomes from that. Chaz Seattle. No, we're not talking about Chaz Bono. We're talking about Chaz Seattle, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and what a mess uh, that is that they have going on over there. Uh, Rayshard Brooks, unfortunately, another casualty uh, at the hands of uh, law enforcement, uh, the timing, of course, for something like this couldn't be worse. Not as uh, clear cut as uh, maybe George Floyd, but uh, certainly, uh, as I said, the timing, you know, is just going to uh, quite literally add fuel to the fire when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests we're seeing around the world. And parades and protests. Uh, we, of course, uh, experienced the Trump flotilla throughout various parts of the country. Uh, we actually, one of our panelists uh, was there this week, uh, this weekend, and uh, so we'll get his take on it. And, of course, the continued protests, uh, both from the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Antifa, uh, and, uh, and, you know, whatever the, the other hot topic is of the day. So let's get into today's panel. Uh, again, new faces I'm really excited about. So right next to me. That gentleman is Devin J. Alexander. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for coming on, man. We met uh, maybe, I think it's been a couple years ago. We uh, we met up in, in the Pasco Canyon area. Um, and uh, you, you still out that way? Yep, still here in Pasco County. And uh, it's been a great time. And I appreciate you for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, down in the opposite corner from me, uh, that beautiful lady is Christina Sarah, also joining us for the first time. Hi, Christina. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on. Well, thank you. And thank you to this guy right underneath me for inviting you on and uh, introducing us. Uh, so we're really excited to have you on the show. And he couldn't be more excited to be wearing a tank top today. That's Christopher Kylan. <laughs> Hey everybody, how's it going? If you notice a red tint to my skin, it was because I was out there yesterday and uh, absorbed a little bit, a few too many UV rays, but uh, we're coping okay. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we'll get into the Trump flotilla, as I said, later on in the show. Uh, but of course, uh, let's go with the easy topic just to get everybody warmed up. The Republican National Convention coming to Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, now, at, at, for some of you might know, I actually was a part of the 2012 Republican National Convention. I was the director of digital operations uh, when it was here in Tampa. And so uh, I've kind of been in the inner circle of kind of how these things are planned and executed. Uh, I can tell you it is absolutely devastating for those that were involved from a local perspective out in Charlotte. Um, but really for the Committee on Arrangements, which many of you may not know, or the, is the committee that essentially puts on the RNC for that week. Uh, there isn't a lot of uh, really that changes other than security precautions, right? And of course, right now, more than ever, that's really going to be a focus, not only because of the number of protests that are happening around the country, uh, but also due to the coronavirus. Uh, and, uh, and so let's kind of approach this first uh, from a selfish perspective. Um, you know, how do you guys feel about uh, the RNC coming back to Florida in such a short time frame? So I'm pretty excited because this gives me the chance to actually go. Um, I'm a little bit on vacation this year because of coronavirus. It's taken a lot of my vacation time away. Uh, luckily, it's been vacation and not you know unpaid time, but now I can go. I'm not going to go all four days. I'll probably go for the last two, uh, but that makes it accessible to me. So that's wonderful. Um, I also think it's great for the party because we're moving from an uncooperative location to Florida. We have cooperative mayors, cooperative governors, people that are going to help us play ball, make sure this happens. So... I'm upset Jane Castor decided that we can have protests, but not an RNC. Um, but what, what else are we going to do? Well, Lynn, look, again, uh, judging by what I experienced in 2012, while I would have loved for it to come to Tampa Bay, and I certainly think we could uh, 
do a better job or or we are more equipped, especially now, than Jacksonville might be. I thought it should have gone to Orlando. I mean, Orlando has the hotels. They have the infrastructure. Um, they, they, they can handle uh, this global influx because that, it's really a global event. I mean, a lot of people don't know that uh, the DNC and the RNC conventions are the second most televised event right after the Olympics. Um, and so this is a huge uh, logistical nightmare that now Jacksonville has to try to navigate. Luckily for them, their downtown is pretty empty. And so, uh, you know, I think uh, from that perspective, you know, they might be in, in somewhat of a good uh, position. But uh, Christina, uh, you know, uh, if you may, maybe give us a little bit of your backstory, I know you're here with us in the Tampa Bay area, but uh, were you here in 2012? And what do you think about uh, the convention coming to Jacksonville? I was here in 2012. Um, I lived in Houston for some time, but I moved back to Florida. It was a very short stint that I spent in Texas. Um, I'm really excited that the RNC is going to come back to Florida. I think Florida is a very important state when it comes down to electoral votes. Um, as far as Trump winning the state of Florida, I think it's a great move on his part and on the RNC's part to move it to Florida. Obviously, we all know that the economic impacts of a convention like the DNC or RNC being brought to a city is um, very profitable for the region, for the area. Um, I do agree with you that Orlando, maybe even Tampa Bay would have been a better choice. Jacksonville does tend to be a little bit smaller. I traveled there for work quite a bit as well. It is smaller, it might not have as many amenities as um, uh, Tampa Bay or Orlando in terms of convention centers and space. However, they, they'll make do just fine. Uh, it's a shame that North Carolina had to miss out on such a great economic, uh, event that would have really greatly impacted the people there and the people of the, those towns. Well, you made also a really good point, which is the economic, uh, not only the economic impact, which Florida absolutely needs because we are so tourism driven, um, but also the political uh, angle on this. And there, you know, there's still some, uh, you know, 538 put a video together about whether or not these conventions have any, you know, true impact uh, on the elections themselves. And the truth is, is it doesn't. But what it does do is give these campaigns a bump because again, now all of a sudden they're, they are wall-to-wall -wall coverage for an entire week and it gives the party and the campaign an opportunity to lay out their platform, lay out their agenda you know, for the next four years. Uh, Devin, I know uh, Pasco County was certainly impacted by the convention when it was here uh, just eight years ago. Um, how are you feeling about this? I'm really excited. Um, I think for President Trump being able to come back to you know, his home state to accept that nomination is huge uh, momentum going into the actual election. Um, I think for Jacksonville with their um, Republican mayor up there, I think it's a really good opportunity for them not only economically, but to be put in the spotlight. And so I'm really excited um, for the opportunity. And, you know, it's a shame that North Carolina missed out, but, you know, I think we here in Florida are open for business and excited for the opportunity to host it. Yeah, I mean, and again, uh, this is going to impact the state regardless. I mean, I remember, again, in 2012, we had people flying into Orlando and to Sarasota just to come to the convention because Tampa International Airports and even uh, St. Petersburg uh, Airport was just completely packed. Um, and so this is going to have a huge economic impact that hopefully will help eliminate some of this deficiency. I mean, I think the tourism tax in Orange County, from what I've heard, uh, was 97% short of what it was this time last year. Um, that, so they're expecting a 97% deficit in their tourism tax uh, for, for this fiscal year. And uh, that's a devastating blow uh, to, to Orange County, the surrounding counties, you know, because you also know Kissimmee and, uh, you know, feeds off of that as well. Um, so... Again, I'm excited. I have family in Jacksonville, so I've got my uh, I've got my accommodations all set, and uh, and hopefully, you know, we can all make it out there, uh, even if uh, it's on the periphery, you know, just to be a part of history, uh, because uh, you know every convention is a part of history, and and uh, it'd be exciting to have two of these in our lifetime here in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. um, all right, <clears throat> moving on to our next topic, a major news to kick off the week. Uh, SCOTUS, I mean, just really dominating the airwaves right now with their ruling where they decided that uh, the 1964 
uh, legislation, you know, that granted equal rights protection, um, you know, actually applies to those in the LGBTQ community. So they can no longer be discriminated against uh, based on who they are married to uh, or their lifestyle. Um, and th this is where, at least personally, uh, I, I feel that uh, the party, our country, uh, is going through a generational transformation. Um, uh, you know, at least in my timeline, and from those of us, uh, you know, again in our generation, you know, you're, 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 I would say anybody that's 45 and under is probably pretty excited and happy about this outcome. I, uh, you know, and uh, and you know, Gorsuch wrote uh, the opinion on it, uh, and Roberts agreed with it, uh, and and in my opinion, it seems like the right outcome here. Uh, Devin, uh, again, I think generationally, this uh, says a lot more about where we're headed as a country. Uh, than it does, um, you know, legislatively per se. Uh, would you agree? <clears throat> I, I definitely would agree. And uh, this is something that we saw a lot of states already creating or having legislation for. And so for it to um, be solidified at the, at the national level, something I saw coming down the pipeline. Um, I did have a chance to look at some of the dissenting arguments that were brought up. And I think there were some valid points brought up about you know, we're starting to see a lot more legislating than, you know, interpreting of the actual constitution. And, and I believe Kavanaugh mentioned that in his dissent as well. And so I, I always want to be cautious about when we start getting into that realm of judges actually acting as legislators and not holding legislators accountable to doing their job, which is creating the laws. Um, and I, I saw an article mentioned where I think there was 157 um, pieces of legislation that have been proposed, but never passed through both houses. Um, and so I think almost is a cop out for the legislators doing what they're elected to, which is to legislate. Christina, I see you shaking your head over there. What's your take on this? I think Devin brings up a great point. Um, I think the outcome was a good one. I agree with it. You know, I think we are becoming more progressive as a nation in good ways. I, we can talk about all the bad ways we're becoming a little too progressive, but I think this was definitely a generational outcome that needed to happen. I do think Devin brings up a great point. Um, and I did read a little bit of Kavanaugh's dissenting opinion where, you know, he says we're judges, we're not members of Congress. And um, he mentions Alexander Hamilton's um, written statement where he says federal judges, you know, should not act and legislate and amend or write law. That's not their job. That's not what they're there to do. So I totally agree with Devin that I, I, while I agree with the opinion and the outcome, I think that we really need to have our legislators held accountable. That's what our legislators need to be doing. So I think both sides, there's some facts in both sides of the argument, and there are some points that need to be highlighted on both sides of the aisle in terms of the Supreme Court and are they now creating law? They're there to uphold the law, not create it. So, um, but to that point, Christina, though, I mean, isn't this their interpretation of that law passed in 1964? I mean, they're not really changing it. They're just saying, hey, this kind of covers all bases. That's fair. That's fair to say that, to, that they are interpreting it this way. I'd, I believe that it is an amendment of the law in my eyes. It seems like they're amending it. Again, I don't disagree with it, so I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But, you know, should that really be up to the Supreme Supreme Court to do or should the legislators have really taken some of these bills that have come down the aisle more seriously for, for their constituents? Well, and, uh, and so I certainly see where you're coming from. But to me, this is kind of like looking back at our Constitution and where it says that all men are created equal, you know. And so, you know, essentially that should have kind of resolved the slavery, uh, you know, argument right then and there. Um, and, and, but it didn't, right? It took obviously a lot for, for it to be interpreted that way finally. And it did take the amendment of the constitution for that, to, for it to be recognized that way. And, uh, and so in, in my eyes, again, you know, if it was written broadly enough, uh, to cover such things as the LGBTQ community, which it wasn't like it was non-existent in 1964, I don't see why it couldn't be applied here. What's your thoughts on this, Chris? So uh, I think you two took the words out of my mouth. Uh, there is a little bit of aspect of legislating from the bench here. I mean, uh, Robert Bork and uh, Mark Levin have both written entire books about this subject. Um, there's been a history since the early 20s of this happening. Um, and I think it's important for Americans to know what each branch's place is in government. 
Uh, so I'd encourage reading uh, Tempting of America by Robert Bork and Men in Black by uh, Mark Levin, both excellent books. Um, the one problem I have with this is I think it's going to begin interfering with uh, religious people. Um, and I think that forcing, in this case, we can force churches to hire people that are against their entire mission, sta mission statement. Um, I don't think they should be able to discriminate in roles, maybe contract roles or things that uh, don't involve their everyday operations. But I think that forcing, say, a church uh, to, to marry people or forcing a church to hire, uh, say, a gay pastor, that is beginning to encroach in the First Amendment. So you have to see which one is more important, which one's more prevalent, which one uh, has to be taken at a higher priority. Um, the, the other problem I see with uh, adding more identity groups to amendments and part of constitutional law is identity groups are infinite. This will, list will get added to over and over again. Um, and I think that can be a dangerous road to go down. Yeah, no, that's a, an excellent point. I mean, we've certainly seen where uh, teachers and other members of uh, staff and faculty at churches or religious organizations have been fired, you know, because it's been discovered that, uh, you know, their lifestyle is not consistent with that of, of, of the church itself or the organization itself. And, uh, you know, again, that's a battle to be fought in, in the Supreme Court and, you know, and no legislation is perfect, you know, but uh, again, I, I, I think I'm in on this one. I'm comfortable with uh, their their ruling their decision on this and you know obviously um, you know they'll have to get more nuanced uh, on a case by case basis um, but uh, you're right the interesting argument is going to be especially in 2020 you know what uh, Trump's <laughs> no pun intended I promise um, you know is it religious freedom you know or individual freedom um, and and that's certainly a very very lengthy discussion I'm sure. Uh, now to kind of shift things over to the other side of the country, um, we are experiencing, I guess, what could be uh, lightly described and maybe not uh, wrongly described as anarchy in the middle of Seattle and uh, this uh, now uh, known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone has been created. Uh, the mayor uh, refuses to uh, take any sort of action on this group, um, as, and uh, the police department has been told to stand down, in fact, giving up one of their precinct offices. Um, is, is this going to be a failed experiment in, in basically anarchy, um, you know, or even uh, a very radical form of, li of libertarianism, or... Uh, you know, do you guys see that, uh, you know, this is maybe just the beginning of something bigger that's going to spread around the country? Christine, I'll let you go first. Well, I think one of the bigger issues at hand is if it if it is an experiment and a failed one at that, it, it it's a good one if they actually learn from it. So they're starting to realize, I believe, in Chaz that they're going to have to institute some of the same programs that you would institute that we already have existing in our system, in our law system. Um, you know, they're almost setting up their own country in their parents' basement, if you really think about it, because they're still getting their food supply and everything else from outside of Chaz and outside the borders. They're being supported. So in order to be truly autonomous, you would have to consider getting your own supplies and having your own food supply and your own logistics and things like that. Um, while I think it is going to be a failed experiment, I, I don't obviously support Chaz. I'm shocked and uh, it's very upsetting to see that the mayor has not stepped in and done something that the cops have been run out of the downtown area as they have. And um, as they're trying to set things in place, like a, their own police force, they're kind of going against everything they've stood for. I mean, haven't the Democrats stood on this ground of no borders, no border walls, you know, no guns. And here they are doing the very thing that they so say to hate. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, happening right now in, in, our, in our country. Well, while this is an incredibly serious issue, I mean, to your point, there are, you know, there, there are quite hilarious instances here where they are not autonomous uh, because they are essentially demanding products and food and things from the outside. They are still using all their capitalist uh, clothing, electronic devices. They have access to Wi-Fi. They're still using the utilities provided by the city. Um, and, uh, and, and the scary part is, is, again, these people are very serious about what they're doing. And uh, the people who actually live in that area and are not part of this demonstration um, 
are essentially being having their backs turned on by all of their legislators, all the way from the local level to the federal level. Uh, you know, there, there are interviews starting to come out now about people who are getting zero response uh, from congressmen, senators, all the way down to their city councilmen. And uh, that's the frightening part, is that the left is continuing to allow this to happen. Uh, Verkyla, what's your take on it? This reminds me of the scene in Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, where the little kids are running around at the trailer park screaming, anarchy! And the kid, other kid goes, I don't know what that is, but I love it. <laughs> so um, it's quite a hilarious instance from the outside. As a resident, I would be pissed. Their government is failing them to a dramatic degree. We have ro roving gangsters passing out their mi mixtape while telling people they're going to blow their brains out if they threaten people. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I'll take the police that I have a one in 300 million chance of getting shot for no reason versus someone who's going to blow my brains out because I was graffitiing uh, the wrong way, uh, not according to their, their proper uh, procedures. Um, and that's what we've seen. We've seen crime uh, go, go rampant in this area. The police chief came on CNN or one of the networks and was saying, our response time for going into Chaz has gone from five minutes to 18 minutes. We now have robberies, rapes, and assaults that we cannot respond to. This is not nonsense. This is the police chief of Seattle saying this is true. So if you think that anarchists and people of their ilk are going to serve you better than what the system we have right now, you've got another thing coming. And Asheville and a few other communities have had these things try to rise up briefly, and it's been squashed by their mayors. Thank God. Well, in, uh, unfortunately, what we've also seen here is, is, as we were predicting, you know, just last week, it was the hijacking of a movement. And we are seeing people within Chaz who are part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but uh, I don't believe this moves the ball for them in any way in terms of trying to get any type of racial inequality, uh, uh, you know, measures passed and trying to get any policy changes. You know, Devin, you know, it, it's it's sad that, you know, we see kind of our society breaking down this way. I would have expected Portland to have something like this uh, before Seattle. But, uh, you know, in regards to kind of the bigger picture here, um, you know, how are people seeing this? You know, do you think this is taking away from the other protests that are happening right now or or are people looking at this uh, kind of through through its own lens? Yeah, <clears throat> I think it really is. And I think it's gone far away from the overall initiative of trying to um, just get justice across the United States. Um, and we, even with the looting, you same thing in that case. But I, I do want to point out something that you, we continuously see is in these cities, they're all ran by Democratic leadership from top to bottom. Um, and they're showing no sense of backbone or direction or leadership, and things are going away. Um, I'm just going to say I'm thankful to live in Florida um, where we have governor and where we have legislators that have a backbone and will not stand down. And, and as you mentioned, I think at the end of the day, it's not going to work and that we're going to get to a point where that mayor is going to have to step up get behind their police officers and get things back to regular because right now they're serving the purpose for a very small portion of their citizens. And if I was a resident of that area, I, I would be outraged. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this is the reason why people pay taxes. This is the reason why, especially in a city like Seattle, your property value is so high and your taxes are so high. It's because, you know, it's supposed to take care of, uh, of incidents like this. And we've seen just a passive uh, policing, you know, especially in Seattle and, and, and mostly in Portland when it comes to Antifa and these kind of far left extremist groups, you know, that they've kind of just let them run wild to the extent that uh, they now in many cases overpower the local police departments. Um, so, <clears throat> Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that uh, my prediction on in all of this is going to be that I don't think that this ends in a, in a pretty way. I don't think this just kind of de-escalates. Unfortunately, I think there's there's going to be a lot more to this before it's all over. Um, but uh, you know, we saw one of these kind of break out. Uh, I think it was in was it in North Carolina or or Nashville uh, where they tried to set one of these up and the police came and and pretty quickly took it down. Uh, you know, but uh, again, this is something that's not going to fly everywhere. 
and uh, certainly don't see something like this happening here in Florida. Um, guys, thank you again for coming on to the show. Uh, you know, just to quickly reintroduce everybody, we've got Devin J. Alexander uh, right next to me. Uh, across from me in the uh, other corner is uh, Christina Sarah joining us, uh, both of them joining us for the first time. And of course, my buddy Christopher Kylan joining us as always. Uh, let's uh, shift gears here uh, as we again kind of go back to what's really continued to be the biggest story nationally, and that is, uh, you know, the the uh, what started off as the George Floyd protests, now you know, part of the larger Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I'll open by saying that I did watch Dave, Dave Chappelle's 846, and I didn't think it would have the impact that it did on me. It truly helped me understand in a much broader way um, what what this really is all about and, and why there is such anger and frustration. Um, obviously, there's been other side effects to this, you know, between the, the riots and the, the property destruction and, and, you know, putting that aside just for a minute, you watch what happened with Rayshard Brooks. And obviously, there's still investigations to be done. Um, but I watched the video, uh, you know, in this situation, you know, body cams. We talked about the body cams here in Tampa finally being approved. And what impact is that going to have on policing? In this case, it didn't have any impact on them. I think they would have operated the same way, regardless of whether they had body cams or not. Um, there were a couple of instances here where I felt they could have let it go. They could have de-escalated the situation and allowed this guy to go on. Look, he's 27 years old. I could tell you, I'm pretty sure around the time when I was 27 years old, I probably slept in my car because I'd had a little too much to drink. Um, and uh, fortunately, I didn't have the police come and visit me. Uh, but um, in the moment for me where he says, you know what, let me just walk home. Let me just get out of here. You know, like, you know, and he was calm and he was cooperating, that to me would have been the opportunity for them to say, hey, well, let us give you a ride, or okay, fine, give us your keys, or something like that, again, to have totally de-escalated the situation. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, we see then when he realizes that he's going to be arrested, you know, we see the, the, the retaliation and the fight back. It's, it's heartbreaking because I think truly, even up to the point where even though he had the taser, he was running away from these police officers and 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 in my opinion he didn't commit a crime right here other than let's say resisting arrest right but there was still no need for them to have shot him in the back um in i don't know that's that's kind of my take on this uh devin i'll let you go first on this uh, did, did you get a chance to watch the video yeah uh, i did get a chance to watch the video um, and I think you brought good points. I did feel that there were multiple times where um, they could have really de-escalated because it seemed like it was a very calm interaction um, yeah. until they went to arrest them. And I feel like that's an opportunity, but at the same time, there's a law. And, you know, if, if you're in a vehicle and your keys are there and you're drunk, by law, you are DUI, you know, and, and, I think the point where they start to get in the tussle, um, it just takes another turn. And to, to me, honestly, and it's easy for me to sit here and to say, I, you know, I would have not used, you know, force and shot him. But um, in a split moment, when someone is turning back around at me and they're about to shoot a taser, um, I think that is that is a moment where we don't know unless we're in that instance what we would do. And to sit here, I've heard folks say that, oh, tasers don't kill folks. While I was reading a statistic earlier where they were saying, saying how there, there is an overwhelming majority of folks that have died due to tasers. And so I think that was a threat to them at that moment. And to be honest, um, I think they did what was right at the time, which is preventing a potential threat to themselves um, and, and going home to their families at the end of that day. Yeah, Devin, you're absolutely right. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, the police officer is, you know, responsible, you know, not only uh, for the public safety, but even for their own. And, you know, as you said, they do have families to get back to. Um, and him having that taser in his hand was absolutely a threat to them. Um, and, and again, you know, that that was certainly his mistake in, in grabbing that weapon. Uh, because I think had he not done so and merely just ran away, 
without the taser. I think, uh, again, we'd be looking at a very different situation. Uh, but again, given the circumstances, the timing couldn't have been worse. Uh, they quite literally set fire to, you know, the Wendy's where this all took place. There were bystanders. There was, you know, three, four cars waiting in the drive-through, you know, as this was all kind of taking place. And I can't imagine what it must have been to be a witness to something like that. Uh, Christina, what was your impression of not only the video, but kind of how they handled this? I agree with you. I think there were many points in that um, entire ordeal that there was an opportunity for de-escalation. And, you know, with all this talk of defunding the police, which I don't agree with, I do think there's obviously some reform we could do, some things we could do better, maybe some training techniques, eliminating certain certain protocols on how things are handled. At the same time, you know, Georgia state law does say that if a suspect possesses a deadly weapon or poses an immediate threat to an officer or to others, they are authorized to use deadly force. Um, so, you know, I do like to take a look at both sides of the aisle. I never want to jump to a conclusion or jump to an opinion without really having all the facts. It is still under investigation. I think I need to know a couple more of the facts before I really come to my opinion as well. However, do I find it disturbing that he was shot in the back? Absolutely. I, I don't think someone running from the police, um, running away from the police constitutes a, a you know getting shot in the back. Um, it was deeply disturbing, I believe, and I don't agree with that action. Do I agree with the police officers, of course, using deadly force when they're presented with a weapon? Absolutely. I think in any case where an officer is being threatened um, and there is an immediate threat being posed to their lives, you know, and the state law says they are authorized to use deadly force. Now, in this case where he did turn his back to them and ran away, is that going to hold up? I'm not too sure. So it's definitely an interesting perspective to see both sides of, of where we stand on it. Well, one of the frustrating parts to me was the fact that not only did they just go ahead and fire the police officer without due process, um, but that the you know police chief resigned in all of this. You know, this is supposed to be the leader of that organization, and for her to basically not even face the the public, not even you know uh, try to again see the process through before deciding to jump ship. I mean, it was incredibly cowardly in my opinion. Uh, Chris, you know, again, this just adds fuel to the fire, you know, sorry for the, you know, terrible kind of uh, metaphor there, but uh, oh, it fits. yeah, I mean, it, the timing couldn't have been worse. Um, obviously, Atlanta, especially being, you know, a, a large city with a large black population, um, you know, in the midst of all this, uh, did you feel that, you uh, you know, that there was a moment there for de-escalation or, you know, what, what's your take on, uh, on this? Did you watch the video? I haven't watched the beginning. I watched the point where he, uh, the, the, the combat began. I haven't seen before that yet. Okay. So I'll reserve judgment. And I think that's like one thing Christina said, she's waiting for the facts. Wendy's was burned down within an hour after this thing started. Why cannot we wait for the facts? It doesn't make sense. It seems like people, they have a, they have a cause they want to support. They want to be outraged. They want to do things real quickly. And it's inappropriate. Um, so, well, again, and this is where I, you know, I would tell people to, you know, take a moment to watch Dave Chappelle's 846 because, again, when you talk about the anger and the frustration, uh, you know, this really puts it into perspective. And, and honestly, Chris, too, you know, uh, and I do want to throw this right back to you, but, you know, there is a video out there circulating online of a woman who was the one who actually set fire to the restaurant who is not even black. I mean, she's, you know, she was there in, you know, the kind of now stereotypical, you know, hooded black, uh, you know, the black hoodie, you know, the, the black face mask, and you see her for well over a minute or two trying to set fire to this Wendy's. So it was very much intentional. Um, now, there was obviously some destruction done beforehand. And again, Wendy's obviously had no role in any of this. But um, I, this is, in my opinion, another example of uh, the far left extremists taking advantage of, of this situation and and this making it look bad on the black community and the movement at large. So as far as what your what your, your original question was as far as de-escalating so the backstory in this guy is this is not his first DUI. I think it's the police's job to make sure that I mean if I don't think letting anyone go from the law is okay. The DA can drop the case. The judge can throw the case out. 
that can be decided after the after the fact. The police's job is to follow through with the law. Um, if they had let this guy go, he's already had his first DUI, and this is kind of where they find out this person's a repeat offender and they need to be introduced to more harshness from the justice system. So I don't think the police should have de-escalated in that manner. I don't think that's fair to the public at large to have someone who's habitually driving drunk out there. Um, no, but but this, is, you- this is where, where, again, you know, in terms of what you just said and Christina was saying, you know, having all the facts and, and, and the full context is going to matter. But, you know, as I said earlier, if you watch the full video, before the whole situation deteriorates. I mean, they're having a more conversation and a more relaxed, calm conversation than even you and I are right now. I mean, it's incredible what happens within those span of, you know, five plus minutes because it literally in a moment as they are, you know, it goes from a casual conversation. He even turns around to allow himself to be arrested. And then in that split second, he makes a decision to fight back against them. And that's when it all goes south. Well, I suppose if you realize you're going back to prison, that might have some things click in your brain uh, if you have a certain kind of, kind of personality. But um, this is like I talked last week about use of deadly force and how the public needs to understand when deadly force is acceptable and the principles of self-defense. So this is a taser is a deadly weapon. And you have to think through this officer's state of mind. The taser is used to incapacitate people. And after this taser, because he was shot in the back, he took a cop's deadly weapon and had a moment, a second, to turn around and fire at that cop, and that would have been possibly the demise of the cop. There's a chance he could have went and took the cop's gun and then shot him after that. There's, there's no guarantee this would have been where it stopped if he would have been, let me go, and then I'll, I'll be nice now. Um, so I think it's really important for the public to kind of learn about these things and think about themselves in this, in this situation. And because people are in a bubble and they're protected all the time, they're not dealing with people like this on a regular basis, they don't have to think these things through, but please, if you can, learn about self-defense and kind of understand from a first-person perspective how this would affect you and your life or the end of your life. Well, but you know, but Chris, to you know, the point that you're making, and and this again, I believe, also applies to George Floyd. First of all, DUI is not a violent offense. Um, you know, now if there had been a DUI be. with well, no, again, if there had been made, let's say, a DUI where someone's life had been taken because of an accident and that sort of thing, sure. But in general, a DUI is not a violent offense. They had no reason to believe that this guy was going to act violently in any way. Um, and, and again, back to you know the unfortunate meme that I saw and, and certainly the point that some people have tried to make, it doesn't matter what George Floyd's criminal record was. It doesn't matter what, you know, what uh, Rashard Brooks's uh, criminal record was. Um, you know, now again, the nuance here is, is that Rayshard grabbed the taser, tried to, I guess I'm, I'm thinking he tried to fire it off at one of the officers and then took off running, you know, which is why they shot him. That, had that not happened, again, this would be a much worse situation. But I think the average person seeing the body cam footage, seeing the security camera footage from Wendy's can say, okay, there were opportunities here for this not to have happened. But at the end of the day, he was responsible for you know, his own demise. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where we gotta be real careful because you know, people tried to make an issue out of George Floyd's criminal record. Well, that, that had no bearing on the fact that this guy had his knee pressed against his neck for, for nine I will minutes. say in court, your character is called into question, whether or not you're, you're convicted or your, your punishment. Your character is called into question. That kind of gives in people court. an aspect of how you behave. You know, if you have a, a violent history, this will show that you are prone to ha- behave violently. Um, yeah, but that's case, in court, Chris. And these guys didn't get their day in court. You know, and and he didn't and, get his day in court because he decided to assault a police officer and then threaten his life. Brooks, in this case, did. Yeah, but George Floyd, again, even with the four other officers standing by there. There was no excuse for this guy to have the, the knee to his neck for nine minutes. There just wasn't. Um, I don't was think already... we know all the facts in that case yet either. No, I mean, he I, was, I think uh, that he he was, was already arrested. Car. He was on the floor. He was pinned. He was, he was already restrained. Um, and, and with four other officers standing around doing nothing, you know, I, I, I mean, again, yes, obviously, we, there, there will be, you know, a lot of investigations going into this, but uh, I don't see how any of that can justify what this officer did. Did you see the so. photograph of the four officers on him at once? This was after he had already fought his way out of the police car. 
And I'm not saying that his, his death was justified, but I'm saying there's a lot of things that happened up to that point that make this less, it's, it's awful. It makes, makes it more understandable as to why he was in that position in the first place. Yeah, but again, you take it even back farther to, let's say, Eric Garner, which was a very similar scenario. And, you know, you're talking about a big guy who where it did take multiple officers to take him down and restrain him. But I believe that once that individual is restrained, if he's saying that if they saying that they can't breathe, you know, um, you know, or that he has some type of injury at that point, I think you need to be aware of that. You need to be responsive to to that. I mean, and, and again, at this point, he's restrained and the officers have their weapons. So there's no threat to the officers. There was no point for these guys to have continued to have the pressure put on them that was put on them, um, being that, again, they, they were already under restraint. I can agree with that, but in, in the case of both Garner and Floyd, uh, if you're restrained, but you're still trying to run away, or you still are fighting back and trying to beat your way out of the police car, I think you can avoid that situation by just going to the police station and having a lawyer you know, uh, you know, know, bail you out. And I think that a suspect can still be a danger while they're restrained. We've seen people get out of restraints. We've seen people fight back using their legs while they're restrained. I mean, this is not... Oh yeah, we don't, we don't know why Richard decided to fight back. Yeah, we don't know why Richard decided to fight back. I mean, other than the fact that I believe it was one of his daughter's birthdays, you know, and 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 that might have hit home and said, "Oh man, you know, I want to be home for my daughter's birthday." And you know, and uh, and that might have been his motivation to try to get out of that situation. Uh, again, he offered multiple resolutions, uh, being and and he wasn't even driving the car. He'd been sleeping in the car, you know, which is again something very common. Somebody just happened to call the cops on him because he was in a private uh, property. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's kind of where it all went south. Uh, Christina, Devin, uh, anything else on, on Richard Brooks? No, I, you know, again, I think we need to really wait for the facts. Um, I think it might have been a little premature that the officer was fired, not to say that his actions weren't reprehensible, again, pending more facts of the case and what happened. Um, but the officer is also entitled to due process as every officer is. So I believe that the movement that's going on right now and the unfortunate timing, like you mentioned many times, um, has affected the way this is going to go. And, you know, had this George Floyd incident and tragic thing not happened so, so recently as to this, it might have gone a different way. Um, I think we're just going to have to wait and see and um, really wait on the facts. And I think that based on what I'm seeing right now, it seems like charges are going to be brought against that officer in the Brooks case. So we're going to have to wait and see. In a court, it might be hard. There may be reasonable doubt that can be proved that the officer felt there was an immediate pose of danger. So again, I think we have to wait on the facts. Devin. Yeah. And I also read somewhere earlier, and I'm not sure if this is completely factual, that one of the bullets that the officer did fire struck one of the vehicles that was in line waiting to go to Wendy's. Um, I'm still trying to look into that, but I saw that brought up somewhere. And so I can imagine that's going to be brought into the equation of well as, you know, at that moment, you know, shooting and um, potentially endangering others around um, the premises at that moment. But you brought up a point earlier about the police chief um, and actually, I wasn't shocked to see that happen. I wasn't shocked to see her resign, because if we recall, there was just another incident in Atlanta um, with the two college students where they had charged the officers for pulling them out of the car. Um, and there was a lot of uproar from that and a lot of calls for her to resign after that incident. And so as soon as I soon as I saw this, I, it, the first thing came to my mind, she's going to step down. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'd kind of forgotten about that. And honestly, because, you know, let's say there wasn't a fatality in that incident, I think that's why it didn't really get the coverage um, that it did. But I, now that you mentioned it, I certainly recall that incident. And, and again, I think that is, again, just one more story to add to this timeline, you know, about why the Black community is as angry as it is. Um, and, and to the extent that there is a problem within our police culture. It uh, doesn't matter the city, doesn't matter the state, um, and people want to pawn it off as a, a bad apple here or there. 
and you're absolutely right. That's certainly the case. It's, it is a minority of the overall number of police officers, but those minorities are obviously causing a big problem here nationally. And especially when you're talking about the fatalities that are taking place. Um, <clears throat> well, I wanna transition that again, right into our final uh, topic for the day. And uh, thanks to everybody for watching the yard sign. Uh, don't forget, you can also watch every single episode on our YouTube channel if you missed any of them. So go find us on YouTube and subscribe, like, comment. Uh, and then if you haven't done so already, you can also catch the audio version of the podcast as you get ready to start commuting to work again. Uh, for some of you, uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, uh, and uh, Google podcast platforms. Uh, just search for the yard sign. Um, the final topic of the day, of course, being parades and protests. And so uh, we'll, we'll shift gears to a little bit of, uh, I would say, the more lighthearted uh, end of that, which was uh, the flotillas that happened around the country. I thought this was just going to be like a Tampa Bay thing at first. And then all of a sudden we see there were uh, there were similar uh, flotillas in California, other parts of Florida, other parts of the country. Uh, Chris, you were there. So tell us, uh, you know, tell us what was that like? I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, two, three times the number, I think, of boats that you would see even for Gasparilla. Yeah, so uh, as your first person correspondent, I will say it was uh, it was quite a gathering. So we started out at Beacon Island and we progressed to uh, kind of like the tip of Davis Island, then back over to Gandhi and then back to Beacon Island. Uh, we took a little bit different route and the entire parade was it didn't go quite the way it was planned, like the, as far as the route goes, but it was a great time. It, it was a little bit choppy because there's a, <laughs> when you have several hundred boats or even a thousand boats going the same place and we're all going, you know, 30 knots or so, uh, it creates a lot of turbulence, but it was really cool to see uh, the news cover us. I really enjoyed that part. Um, it was really nice to feel like you're amongst people who are like-minded and realize that your movement is not uh, such a niche um, minority of the politique. Uh, I will say, well, go ahead. No, I was going to say, they, no, I was going to say, you know, that, that they call it the silent majority, you know, and I think yeah. that that silent part, I think is becoming, you know, less of an issue. I think more people are becoming more comfortable and standing up for what they believe in, who they support. And especially right now, I mean, people, uh, people's, um, they're worked up, they're passionate, they, uh, they're, they're fired up for this election um, for good and bad reasons, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I think uh, this is certainly something new that I've never seen, especially in support of a, a president or a, a presidential candidate. And, uh, and so to see a demonstration like that really, I think, flips on its head the media narrative, you know, that this is not representative of the country when, you know, again, even in states like California, you're starting to see more vocal support for the president. Well, you saw in the Tampa Bay Times, there was an article about this and they didn't use a picture behind me, but they said 300 people showed up, 300 people, my ass. Like, look, there's about 300 boats right there, uh, each of them with 10 people each. And this is just the boating population of Tampa Bay. So, I mean, to see people minimize this and kind of like mock us in that way, like if you're gonna mock us, at least use the right numbers, you know, try to figure out a way to make it look bad using real numbers. So uh, that well, was a Well, to shame that point, me. you know, to Go that ahead. point, I mean, they're, they're trying to make it seem, you know, that, uh, you know, not to disparage the protests, you know, but they're trying to make it seem like, hey, there's nothing wrong with these protests happening in the midst of a, uh, a virus pandemic, you know, but it's wrong for the president to be holding a rally you know, that's going to fit maybe 20,000 people. Uh, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you're having, you know, two, three times that march, you know, in DC, you know, march in New York City. Um, and, and this is why I kind of wanted to juxtapose the two, because it, it is really like two different worlds. I mean, you, you know, on one hand, these flotillas are celebrating uh, the president and, uh, and, and the support that there is for the president. And on the other hand, you have these protests that obviously have a very different message with with different you know targets uh, per se you know in terms of who they're trying to reach as an audience uh, christina you know what what does this kind of tell you when you see something like this you know you're not as entrenched politically you know as you know as part of the young republicans or anything like that so kind of looking a little bit from the outside in what's your perspective when you see not only the protests but also seeing something like these flotillas happening well, I think the flotillas are a beautiful demonstration of some of the other perspective in this country. I think too often 
the left-winged media produces this narrative that is really false. And um, they really want to produce this narrative so that it really influences the people of the country and the voters. You know, we know it's election year. I think they've been doing this from the beginning. They've been trying to narrate a different story that isn't really there and that the facts don't really support. I mean, they do this with Trump's rallies. You know, they minimize the numbers that show out for Trump's rallies. Meanwhile, they've been caught editing videos and using different footage for their own Democratic campaigning um, events and things of that nature. So I, I really wish that the country would be more unified in a sense that we can come together and combine both sides of the aisles on issues that we both believe in. I don't like the single-mindedness that's out there that if you're a Trump supporter, you must be a racist. And if you're not a Democrat, you must not be for Black Lives um, Mattering. So I just wish that there was more openness that you can have one with the other. It's not one or the other. And um, while we see these beautiful demonstrations, I just hope that we're able to unify a little bit more on our ideas and perspectives because a lot of us are really the same. We just don't know it because the media tells us not to. Uh, now, Devin, uh, I'll kind of call you out a little bit here. You and I met uh, at a Young Republicans meeting uh, up in Pasco County. And uh, so that, that, you know, it was great you know, to have been there and obviously to have gotten a chance to meet you. Uh, but uh, this sort of thing, to be quite honest, isn't my bag. You know, the, like I wasn't at the flotilla, um, you know, and I was actually at Legoland, and <laughs> which is more my my kind of thing. And then uh, and and I I haven't participated in any of the protests, regardless of uh, you know I I just I'm not a protest kind of guy. Um, mm -hmm. Have you done any of this sort of thing? What do you think about all this? Yeah, you know, I haven't either, to be honest. I, you know, I've always told folks when it comes to activism, find your lane. Some folks that's boots on the ground, some that's virtually or financially helping. Um, but for me, um, we, we here in Zephyr Hills, we did have somewhat of a um, unity protest um, that was done in conjunction with a community activist and our police department. Um, and so that's probably one of the very few things that I've done actually in person. Um, I, me, on personally, the reason why I haven't gone out, um, it's just because the looters, to be honest, and being worried about being caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and not being able to get out of those situations. And so I decided it was best for me to, to stay home and to, to help educate and to spread awareness um, virtually. And so I've done some lives and things of that sorts. But uh, I'm, as I've shared with folks, and you've probably seen me on Facebook say, um, I'm for folks being able to stress, at least express their First Amendment, no matter what side of the aisle you sit on. Um, it's their constitutional right. And just because you don't believe in it doesn't mean the Constitution just shifts for your willingness. And so anything that is done in order and proper, um, I'm always going to be for it, whether I don't stand like firmly for it or against it, but I'm going to be for them having the ability to exercise that right. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And I think for a lot of people who um, are more observers, you know, in the political process and, and just do their diligence and voting and whatnot, um, there is a role for everybody. And, you know, and this is one of those things that honestly, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care what you believe in, um, whether we agree on it or not. Uh, I encourage everyone to be a part of the political process, find a lane for yourself, find a place where you uh, can have an effect on the change that you want to see in your community. And, uh, you know, the bigger picture being here, which is, I think, the message, especially right now with the BLM, is that they want to see actual change. It's, it, you know, and we're starting to see that, you know, Breonna Taylor is, is, is starting to see some justice uh, in Kentucky, uh, the state legislature, of course, uh, you know, uh, prohibiting or eliminating no-knock raids. I think that's huge. Uh, again, I think that's, that, that I'm surprised is even considered constitutional. Um, but in this case, it was a fatal mistake. And, uh, and, and then to see the cover-up happen behind the scenes, I think is the most infuriating part of that. Um, but again, around the country, we're starting to see actual change take place for the positive. And that's what needs to happen. Uh, you know, these protests too often uh, come and go and the, the destruction 
you know, that sometimes the fallout of that comes and goes, and then we, we're just back to normal. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if BLM and uh, the groups that support it uh, are able to kind of keep this going until they see the, the change that they're wanting to see, you know, good on them, you know, because again, that's how this country works. And um, it, it, it's not through destruction and it's not through establishing uh, zones like Chaz. Um, it, it's through activism and through having your voice be heard by your legislators uh, and at every level of government. And uh, so far, I think they're being more effective than any movement has in recent years. Um, uh, you know, I want to kind of touch on this last thing as part of our parades and protests topic, which is that uh, the president tweeted out just a little while ago that they have now almost a million registrations for this rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which thankfully got uh, rescheduled because it did fall on Juneteenth, uh, which, uh, you know, I learned about, you know, and it goes to show you how terrible really, you know, our, our the history, you know, that we are taught is. Um, I only learned, I'd say, within the last five or six years what Juneteenth even was. Um, and of course, this rally was not only supposed to take place in uh, Tulsa on that anniversary, um, but it was also, you know, when uh, there's a, uh, the convention is now falling on an unfortunate uh, anniversary event too. But um, knowing how these things work, okay, and I'm going to kind of pull the curtain, you know, back for people. This is a data grab. Okay, so basically you just say, hey, anyone and everyone can come, first come, first serve, get your tickets. Okay, now you have a huge database of people that you know wanted to come to your event. So good on the campaign for getting this kind of momentum. Um, I try not to find myself within the bubble, you know, for these sort of things. You know, you don't want to get too excited about momentum for a campaign. But this to me just blows me away. I mean, do you, do you guys feel this momentum is real or is this just kind of a spur of the moment kind of thing? Chris, I'll let you go first. It's hard to tell, honestly, because as some others have pointed out, sometimes we have people who are Democrats or people who want to see this thing crash and burn registering for these things, thinking they're taking tickets, but they have no idea that's not going to happen. Um, I will say that as far as the anniversaries of things, there's a long history of a lot of things, and there's something bad that happened every single day. So to use that as an excuse to tell your opponent you cannot have a rally or you cannot celebrate what you what you believe in on that day is, is nonsense. And I think that the connotation that Donald Trump is somehow on the opposite side of you know the bad side of what happened in that point in history is nonsense. I think that you can actually embrace Juneteenth or whatever kind of history, you know, and say, this is why we believe what we do as conservatives. And this is why people who are, who feel positively about Juneteenth can come to our rally and understand what we're actually about. Hey, look, I agree. I mean, you know, this was a missed opportunity really to educate the larger public of the origins of the Republican Party. And I would have maybe turned it into a Juneteenth celebration and, and taken it as an opportunity to highlight and promote, you know, the, the, the voices you know, in the black community that are on the conservative side of the aisle that are supporting the president's reelection. Um, you know, but, you know, I'm also okay with them moving it. I certainly get why, you know, some people took issue with it. Uh, Devin, uh, was moving it the right call or uh, would you have kept it on the same date? Uh, I think I personally thought moving it was the right call. Um, and I also believe that we as a party have really missed an opportunity and missed everything that's going on to really um, educate folks on the origin of our party and what we stand for and what that's looked like throughout history. I think that's a huge miss by us. Um, and I would like to, you know, to see us start doing more educating. I know personally I have myself um, because that's, that's who we are. Um, and until we start making, giving that storyline and educating folks, uh, I think folks will fall into that leftist trap every single election year and every mm -hmm. single time that comes back around. Christina, uh, you know, are you, have you ever gone to, you know, any of these kinds of rallies, protests, uh, any of that sort of thing? So I don't, um, I don't really protest. I'm all for anybody who wants to peacefully protest and speak up and show their activism in that manner. It's not my thing. It's just 
you know, I have a, a really high demanding um, career that requires a lot of my time. So I don't really have the time nor it's, is it a passion of mine to go out on the streets and protest, but I respect them. I respect the movement. I respect the change they want to see. Um, I don't respect the violence and the looting. Obviously, I think that's pretty, um, pretty obvious there. Um, and I, as I, I, you know, I voted for Obama twice. I was very young. I think I got looped into some of the ways that he spoke and how charming he was. And I, I realized the older I got, I didn't really um, fit with that party. And I'm starting to find my voice more as a conservative and as a conservative woman. And um, I'm finding myself really passionate about politics and wanting to be more involved. So I haven't been to a rally. Honestly, I would love to go. I've heard that the energy and the positivity at the rallies are just of immense, um, immense measurements. And I, um, I'd love to be a part of it. Um, so I'd really like to see what they're all about. Well, and uh, within your circle of friends, Christina, and your family members and that sort of thing, being that you're just kind of on the uh, the beginning uh, stages of getting politically involved, you know, what what's the temperature there? Do they think that uh, Trump has this locked in um, or, or are they pushing, you know, are they thinking this is kind of a too close to call type of situation? Mm -hmm. So I've always been passionate about politics. A lot of people don't know that my BA was in political science and government. Um, so I've always had a passion there. Now, my, my parents are immigrants. They're both immigrants. And what's interesting is my parents are Trump supporters, but they're immigrants who came here legally and they made a life for themselves. And you know, with this whole discussion about privilege and everything, it's really interesting when you talk to actual immigrants who have come here for a better life. Um, so I, I think I have family and friends that are on both sides of the aisle. I have family and friends who think Trump is, is a bigot, is a racist, is the most horrible thing that happened to this country. And I have family and friends who are active Trump supporters and support the conservative values that he stands for and the American values he stands for. So there's been a little bit of a divide, even in my immediate family, you know, I've got two brothers who are liberal and I've got other family members who are completely conservative. And I would think that, um, I think many of us are confident that the president is gonna be elected for a second term. Um, historically speaking, it is not likely, it has happened less than you would imagine that the incumbent is unseated. It's very unlikely to happen. That alone statistically is not very high chances of happening. On top of, I think Trump's movement is growing and I think his base is stronger than ever. And I also believe that a lot of people are waking up there's a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Latinos, they're waking up and they're understanding that the Democrats and the left have not always been for them. And a lot of times they're being used in a larger political game as pawns. Well, you know, to your point too, I think we have more access to information than we ever have been. And I think the voter is also becoming more educated in that sense. Devin, what's uh, your early prediction on this? Does the president have this locked in? Is it going to be too close to call. What, what what do you think? You know, I've I've been saying um, for a couple months now that I think it's going to be a close one. Um, I think that I'm really worried about what this movement currently, how that's going to affect when it comes to the African American base. I feel like um, statistically, what the president had done for the African American community, it speaks for itself. Um, unemployment across the economy, across all realms. Um, but for some folks, this this is that line for them. And so that's why I said I really think it's important for us to share our foundation and where we stand and, and what we stood for over time um, when it comes to the African-American community. But also another area that worries me is those suburban women. Um, and I really haven't looked any data here recently of how we're performing in those areas. But I know some of those toss-up areas that we saw that flipped the house was um, very close and controversial. And so I'm curious to see what that data looks like currently. Um, I think like really good point about the incumbent, um, but I think at the end of the day, um, we play it close and go full force and make sure that we're crossing all of our T's and dotting all of our I's um, and we'll be okay at the end of the day. All right, Christopher Kylan, you know, we had the coronavirus. Uh, now we've got Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, the economy is trying to bounce back. Uh, can the president pull off a win? What do you think? I think that all the negative things that have happened, we've seen how they're handled. And I think that if you are honest and you seek the truth, 
you find that we've done the best we can as conservatives. The president has done the best he can. Uh, so I think as far as that aspect, we have it in the bag. We've proven what we have done. We've done the right things and we've had good outcomes. But my attitude personally, and I think every conservative that's out there should feel the same way, behave and act like you have it in the bag, campaign and work like you are in the weeds. This is not something you want to leave to chance. This, we do not want what is going to happen if we lose this election. So it is up to every conservative out there that cares about the outcome of America to work on their campaign, to donate, to produce shows like these or talk to your friends about why we believe what we believe. Don't let Democrats tell people who are on the fence what we believe. You tell them what we believe so they don't get lied to. So yeah, well, I think that if you keep that in mind, we'll, we'll have a good election. Well, I think you also kind of, you know, just just slightly skirted around one of the major points, both you and Devin, which is uh, how much of this movement with Black Lives Matter and, uh, and the racial inequality that we're seeing in, in the country is going to be pinned on the president. I mean, really what happened to George Floyd or Rashard Brooks, you know, has, has nothing to do with the president. Um, yeah. and, and somehow it all kind of ties back to that. And what impact is that going to have? You know, because again, we're starting to see some, uh, let's say, oh, some awakening. You know, even Sean King, you know, you know, mentioned, you know, that the people that are responsible for these policies are all Democrats. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see whether or not that has an effect on the election. I think Donald Trump pulls off a win. Uh, thank you again, Christina, Sarah, Devin, J. Alexander, Chris, or Kylan for joining me on the show. It's been another episode of The Yard Sign. We'll see you next Monday. Thanks so much for watching.